there, Misketeers. Lex here. Wanted to stick a quick disclaimer up at the top of this week's episode. Uh, before the break, in our first section, there are some uh, little wonky issues with my audio. You can get everything I'm saying, but it's a little little off. Wanted to let you guys know after the break clears up totally fine. We hope it does not detract from your enjoyment of this episode in any way. Uh, that about does it. So, Tari, roll us. All right. We are rolling now. Counting us down. Three. Two. You're listening to Missing Out with Lex Michael and Tari J. Let's start the show. Hello there, Misketeers. Welcome back to Missing Out. I'm Tari J. I am Lex Michael. And if this is your first time listening, what we do here is we introduce each other to different media, whether it be music, Movies, television, spoken word, books, experiences, things that have built us up as people, and we hope that in sharing it, it builds you up. We are the retrospective that is introspective. And we are going to be podcasting until the trees of the forest literally rise up against us, which means we'll be doing it forever. Ah, yeah. Get that sweet, sweet int type magic, and they're gonna, they're gonna, gonna, but they're gonna stay put, and so we'll never lose a podcast ever, never. Look at our ambition. (laughs) Which is ironic, because, you know, deforestation moves forests all the time, am I right, guys? (laughs) Ha ha! They're, they're coming for all of us. Oh, yeah. So, Lex, you wanted to kick off this month's theme, which is Cinema Lit 101. Hashtags. So, well, what's the deal with this month? So, this month, y'all know, is September when you're listening to this. You're listening to it when it first comes out. So, what we thought was, ordinarily, in the before time, you know, this is when academia would be back in full swing, right? Like a lot of us would be getting back into the classroom, learned some things. Well, of course, uh, right now, under the current circumstances, that is not as viable an option for everybody as it would be otherwise. So we thought, well, why don't we make the Missing Out podcast your classroom? Why don't we teach you a couple of things about cinema and literature and where the two combine and meet and mingle and show us things presented in a new way, a way that they didn't exist before. And so a perfect example of that, an example that I picked to start us off this month is Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which is, of course, an adaptation or a transposition, as some have called it, of William Shakespeare's Macbeth, also known, of course, as the Scottish play if you're in a theater and you don't want the theater gods to smite you. Uh, right. severely. Now, here's a, an important question for you before we get started. Now, I've already I already said it, really, so uh, arguably it's too late. But uh, you're not supposed to say the name of the play in a theater. That's, uh, again, very notoriously bad luck in the theater world. Does this forum, Tari, in your opinion, count as a theater? Or are we safe from the curse if we continue to rattle off the name of the character and the source play? Well, I mean, technically we are within the theater of the mind but i don't think that counts i think that we can say it as much as we want also i am not a theater person so i don't have those superstitions so i could be like macbeth macbeth oh boy macbeth (laughs) and i told you that like my first introduction to the character of macbeth was from 
the uh, you know animated series Gargoyles, where he was a regular antagonistic character. Uh, <laughs> and so they'd always be like, Macbeth, Macbeth, Macbeth. So like, I didn't, and as far as I'm concerned, he's just some dude who's immortal or whatever, which is not the original story, but it should have been. Fair enough. I, I, I felt like we should deal with that up top so as not to send too many theater people into too much of a, of a tizzy. Needed to, to be addressed. But yes, so Akira Kurosawa's adaptation, transposition of Shakespeare's Macbeth. Is it, is it pitch time? Do I pitch now? Hell yeah. Well, let's see. Yep, that's the right pitch. Oh, all right. Well, then you just did. My job is done. I think we can call it for the day. Oh, okay. We found it. Well, we found it, guys. We did it. We can go home. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, for missing out. Uh, <laughs> you can <laughs> No, uh, you got to give us that pitch, baby. All right. I think I can do this one fairly succinctly. Ready? Uh, from indisputably one of the greatest and most influential filmmakers ever to do it in collaboration with his his greatest artistic partner and one of the most influential actors of all time, adapting a work by uh, who is widely considered to be the greatest and most influential writer of all time. This thing is wild. I love this movie. I hope you like it too. Throne of Blood rules. Tari, what did you think? I thought it was pretty good. I will say that I think... In our last episode, at the end, when we were introducing the idea of this month's theme, I incorrectly said that it was a an adaptation of Hamlet. And so when I started the movie, I was like, this doesn't feel like Hamlet. And then we got like 10 minutes in and I was like, nope, this is definitely Macbeth. <laughs> so it took a little bit of <laughs> incorrectness on my part to get into it. But uh, once it started, I was enthralled by everything that happens. Like it starts in media res, like hella shit's happening. People are coming and reporting the insurgency. Like it's so crazy. Um, and then the visuals kick in, especially once you start meeting all the different characters and they start introducing the supernatural. So uh, I, I really dug it. I thought that it was a really well done, uh, you know, adaptation of the Macbeth story from what I know about the Macbeth story. And I also feel like it was a really solid, like feudal era Japan story as well. Yes. And that's the, the biggest pivot in terms of the, the cultural perspective or the sort of cultural landscape in which the narrative is settled, right, is that uh, obviously uh, Kurosawa's adaptation takes place in feudal Japan, whereas uh, obviously William Shakespeare's original play did not. But yes, um, it's, uh, Macbeth was Kurosawa's uh, favorite of Shakespeare's plays. We know that he'd read it a bunch. It's, I, I don't know if it's known for sure if he had actually seen a production of it. Uh, I believe he definitely hadn't seen a film version of it before making this movie. But he had wanted to do a version of it um, right after he did Rashomon, which is a handful of years before this. But I think right around the same time, Orson Welles it was either about to make his version of it or uh, it, it was about to come out. And so he, he held off for a few years. But it's a story very much about, I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with the story, even if only very broadly, you know, because it gets referenced so frequently in other areas of pop culture, but very much a story about a lusting for power and how that quest, that insatiable lust for power will ultimately, yes, corrupt absolutely, but also uh, more than likely destroy you, which is no good. So don't, don't be power mad. It's a story that carries a lot of weight and a lot of uh, heft. 
and a lot of power. And it's no wonder to me that uh, it spoke to Kurosawa the way that it did. Yeah, I get that. I mean, the tale of Macbeth and, you know, the Lady Macbeth and the, her temptations and the stories of ambition. It's a tale as old as time. Song as old as rhyme, <laughs> Lex Michael. And I feel like even if you've never read it, which I haven't, you know the story in some way, shape, or form. Like, I think I've I've read other adaptations of it. Like, as I said, they do broadly the Macbeth story in Gargoyles before he becomes immortal. If you aren't familiar with Macbeth, the character, you probably know about the three witches. You know, like, there's, there's so many pieces. It's even referenced in Hamilton, where he's like, another day to day, etc. Scottish play, blah, 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 blah. And he said the thing, he said the word, in the theater what a fucking what a suit what a non-superstitious guy well i think you get away with it the loophole is if it's part of the dialogue of the play that you are performing but i do think it's been a while since i did any shakespeare but if i recall correctly even if you are working on a production of the scottish play as it is known you are still to refer to it as the scottish play when you are not using the name of the character in context. I had an old roommate who, uh, he was a theater guy, and he would call it McBee. So... Yeah, McBee, that's another one that you yeah. hear a whole bunch. And you'd hear, like, the ca the character himself would often be referred to as Mackers, if I recall correctly. Ah, okay. Do you think that after 1957, everyone just started calling it Throne of Blood Prime? <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, yes, Throne of Blood Zero. They were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Or or for the cool people, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah. I'm about to be in that T.O.B. That Todd, bruh. Yeah, bruh. <laughs> I would also, I think I'd enjoy a, I don't know if you could do it on a stage, but I feel like a, a fun staged production of Throne of Blood would also be pretty dope. Yes, which you could do. Theoretically, you could stage most of this, um, which I suppose speaks to, and this is something that we can address up top because it's not about plot. This movie, yes, there's a lot of stagey elements, and that has a lot to do with Kurosawa's major source of in inspiration formally, which we're going to talk about a little bit when we get to our What's the Difference section. But to that, this movie was made in a notably more formal style by Kurosawa than what we were used to, or we would have been used to getting from him at that time. It's like, well, we were used to, like I was there. Uh, but what we would have been used to getting from him at that time, it is a little bit more, let's say a little bit more constructed, a little bit more stagey without ever losing um, a feeling of scale, of scope, of grandeur, sort of like, I don't know, to put it very haughtily, of cinematic majesty. Like it's still very much, you can take almost any frame out of this movie, just like you can take almost any frame out of most of Kurosawa's work. You could uh, put a frame around that frame and hang it on your wall and A, it would look great and B, that image by itself would tell a story. So he's always been a master of the form itself. But I think in the lead up to this movie and, and a lot of what came afterwards, I think there's a much more uh, sort of loose, um, at times a little bit more wild and certainly more Western style, whereas this movie definitely is uh, more formal in its presentation than a lot of his other work. And again, we'll talk about sort of uh, the why and the how behind that uh, okay. a little bit later. Cool. Well, I mean, I think that we 
are starting to bridge the area of spoilers. And so what we have to do is stop that bridge by lowering the spoiler wall. Ting, 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 ting. Oh, it's coming down. No one's, no one's building a bridge for us. We're, we're, we're closing ourselves off. You, you want to be on the other side. You got to clear the toll, which is either watching the thing or accepting the terms and agreements, which is that you won't yell at us for giving you spoilers. Those are the two tolls that you have to use to get across this bridge wall. So we... (laughs) (laughs) I was... You were still going. At a certain point, I was like, the bridge is down. They're ready. They're coming across. They're joining us. And he's still giving the spiel about the bridge. It's cool. I'm here. I'll eat eat some pistachios out of this bag and I'll just let you go. I mean, it's for the people in the back, you know, because like you can't hear me from the front or like you can't hear me in the back as like everyone's starting. But like I keep going so that everyone is up to date when they get to the other side of the wall. Right. Uh, You're like the uh, animatronics that talk to you in the lines when you're at at Disneyland and you're trying to get onto the attraction. You're like, um, oh God, what's it? A Hondo when you're waiting to get on the Millennium Falcon ride where it's like he gives you the whole feel. But if you were in the middle of the room when he started the spiel, you are going to hear the entire spiel word for word again for the people behind you. So you're that guy. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, there's a little there's a little tip jar on the side of the bridge where uh, you're not obligated to do so. But the way that you can tip us is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or a view. You know what that does? That helps us get to the top of the charts. That helps other people find us. It helps spread the word about this yummy, yummy goodness that we are blottering all over you. (laughs) Yep. Uh, so if you are feeling so inclined and as you pass me your animatronic guide, then you can feel free to do so. But again, no obligation. We would just appreciate it. Uh, I think I have stalled for enough time. I think the last few people are, uh, crossing the bridge and paying their toll. So now we will see you on the other side of this break. All right, we are back. And you know what that means. It's time for my favorite segment, Buster Recap. Since this was introduced to me, I am going to be recapping it for anyone who hasn't seen it in a long time or just loves to hear me talk. So this takes place in... Japan. We don't have a the name of the specific region, but we do have the name of the castle. In the subtitles, it was the Forest Castle, but the original name of the movie is the Castle of Spiderwebs, so who knows? Who knows what, what it is? But the, the original name could be more metaphorical. You guys know metaphors, right? Good, because there's a lot of them in this movie. So, we are introduced to the Lord of Forest Castle, and apparently there's this group called the Inui, and they are like, yo, we want to take over your territory. And the Lord's like, hell nah, we got forts, we got hella forts, and the forts fight back the Inui. But, like, the major heroes of that 
revolution uh, or the anti-revolution, if you will, are two guys. We got Captain Mickey, who is the second fort leader. And then we have Captain Mickey and Captain Washizu. They are the baddest motherfuckers, their best friends. They fended off all of the invaders and they're like, hell yeah, we're gonna go and do some stuff. And then as they're riding back to the main castle, they get lost. Like it becomes a, like, a, like a labyrinth. And so as they're trying to make their way out of the forest, they run into this big foggy area. There's lots of rain and there's a witch just like spinning some yarn and singing a song. And they're like, this song seems thematically appropriate. What's your deal? And the witch is like, hey, I got some prophecies for you. You guys want to know your future? And they're like, shut up or I'll kill you. And she's like, yo, Washizu, you're going to be the the lord of the first fort. And then you're going to be the lord of the forest castle, baby. And Washizu's like, nah, bruh, my lord is my lord, baby. And she's like, we'll see. And then Miki's like, hey, hey, I want to know my future. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And so she's like, well, your fortune's going to go up and down. But your son is also going to be the lord of forest castle. Guess what? After Washizu! And they're like, ha ha, what craziness. That witch is crazy. Our lord is our lord, and he'll be our lord forever. I have no ambition. And she's like, bitch, you humans don't even want to acknowledge your own feelings. I'll be seeing you later. And she disappears. And then they go to the castle, and the lord is like, hey... You remember that thing she told you? It's about to happen. So, Washizu, you're lord of the first fort. Mickey, you're lord of the second fort. Baby, you guys got promoted. You're heroes. We love you. Have some land. And so they do, and we skip some time, and everyone's like, ooh, yeah, Washizu's so cool. I love that he's here in this fort with us. And then Washizu's wife uh, is like, hey, hey. Are you a bitch or are you gonna you gonna be the lord of the forest castle? And he's like, I'm loyal to my lord. Like, yo, I'm I'm chill. I just got promoted. Everything's fine. And she's like, I guess if you don't have a penis, you know, maybe you can just be happy with what you have. But if you were a real big dick, this giant bald dude, you can go and kill the Lord. And he's like, how dare you? That's literally a crime. And she's like, it won't be a crime if you're the Lord. And he's like, oh, shit, maybe. And then she's like, look, I'm going to set this up for you. And it's going to be really cool. Don't even worry. All you got to do is pin it on the Lord's son. And you're going to be the Lord. It's going to be super dope. And no one can stop you because we're all the way up. And she essentially drugs all of the Lord's guards. He kills the Lord while the Lord is staying, hanging out in his fort. And then they're like, oh, no, the Lord's dead. It must have been his son. But his son and another guy are like, dude, you you fucking you did it. You betrayed us. We're going to go tell everyone at the main castle. And so it becomes this cool rat race where they're like, oh, boy, we got to get through the forest. And they manage to get to the castle before uh, Washizu and his men. But 
Mickey is the one who's guarding the castle, and Mickey's like, hey, fuck off, and he shoots the guys, and so they have to run off into the forest, and so uh, Washizu's like, hey, uh, I have the Lord's body, which I did not create, please let me in, and then Mickey's like, look, I know that we both have that prophecy, and so uh, I'm gonna let you do this, and I'm not gonna rat you out, because, like, my son is totally going to take your place when you're ready. Um, this benefits all of us. Please don't screw me over. And while she's just like, I'm not going to screw you over. I'm a man of my word. Ha 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 <laughs> And so he becomes the Lord and all of his subjects are like, oh man, our territory's gotten so good. It's so sweeping and amazing. While she's just so cool. And while she's just like, yo, I'm going to uh, announce that Mickey's son is going to become my heir. I don't have an heir of my own. And it's only fair because Mickey held it down. He was like, yo, don't go back on your word. And like, I got your back. Everything's dope. But he totally went back on his word because his wife was like, hey, um, you know, I was talking mad shit about Mickey earlier. And I feel like I'm still right. He's going to betray you. I have a baby now, so, like, you don't have to worry about giving it to his son. So, like, hey, what if, and just stick with me here, what if we killed Mickey? <laughs> and he's like, Mickey's my best friend. And, he, and she's like, best friend or best enemy? <laughs> and he's like, well, I mean, he he's indebted to me. There's no reason why he would betray me. And she's like, that's what fucking pussy ass bitch ass motherfucking shitholes think <laughs> but maybe if you're not any of those things you're gonna kill mickey and his son and he obliges he's like i guess so but the guilt of doing so causes him to start going mad he's like oh boy now that i have this power i don't want to give it up no i don't want anyone to take it away from me and so he like starts causing a bunch of people to resign and by resign i mean kill themselves <laughs> And then Mickey's son avoids the assassination and joins up with the Inui. And also the Lord's other son also joins up with the Inui. And they're like, yo, we are going to storm this castle. We're going to take our, our uh, land back. You're a, a traitor. We hate you. We're going to kill you. We know all your tricks. Fuck your face. But by this point, Washizu is already going mad he's paranoid he can't deal with anything and he has no sound strategy to fend them off because their ranks are so heavy and these generals are badasses and so then he's like yo i'm gonna go visit the witch again and i'm gonna be like yo is there a chance that they're gonna beat me and she's like oh well as long as the forest doesn't move and he's like that's impossible and definitely not double speak and she's like you're right haha -ha. and then a bunch of ghosts come out and are like look dude if you're gonna be ambitious fucking be ambitious be that bad guy be the bad bitch that kills everybody who stands in your way and they each say variations of the same thing like if you're gonna be a bad guy be a bad guy don't no half measures and he's like nah i got this i'm i'm good i am i'm in the right i'm never gonna lose the battle ever i'm gonna take that back to my, my pals 
And so he does this big impassioned speech and everyone's like, hell yeah, forests can't move. And then they wake up the next morning and the forest is moving and he's like, fuck. And everyone's like, yeah, you done fucked up because this means you're going to lose. And so he's like, but like, be on my side, though. And they're like, what if? Listen, 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 listen. And then they shoot him with arrows and he dies. (laughs) Um, And so the son takes his place as the rightful heir to the forest castle, just as prophesied, uh, but in the most tragic way possible. Uh, I guess also I have to mention that the wife goes mad as well, but they don't really dive into that as much. The baby that she was going to have is stillborn, and she starts seeing blood on her hands because she uh, was instrumental in the deaths of many, and it becomes like this curse thing. But that's a B story because like they really forget about her by the third act. <laughs> So, yeah, and then the the ghosts sing a song about the uh, dangers of ambition, and then we fade out to some sweet credits. And that is Throne of Blood, also known as the Castle of Spiderwebs. Uh, that was, uh, I will say, I think my favorite, uh, not just adaptation of Macbeth, your recap just there, uh, but also I think my favorite adaptation of any of Shakespeare's works uh, in any medium, I think was your recap just now. Hell yeah. Suck it, Romeo plus Juliet. Suck it, <laughs> the Lion King. Suck <laughs> it, 10 things I hate about you. <laughs> Maybe that's one more thing to hate, bitches. Uh, but <laughs> now that we've gotten uh, the, the gist of what it's about, uh, what's the difference, Lex Michael? Um, okay, so a lot of people use the word transposition when referring to Throne of Blood rather than adaptation. And while uh, I could completely see the argument that that's sort of an arbitrary and rather pretentious distinction, um, I do think you can argue for it in as much as it is not a straight retelling of Macbeth and it is not presented in the way you would present a straight retelling of Macbeth. That's obviously the starting point, but there are a number of other influences that Kurosawa pulls from. And this uh, is where we can start to talk a little bit about the form of the thing, because yes, there are a number of uh, areas where the plot differs from that of the source material. And like we can hit a few of those points in a minute, but I think the biggest, uh, most significant difference as far as the final product is the form of the thing and the influence of the no theater on this movie. Um, no NOH. So that was a, a very popular form of theater in Japan. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, it came up in the 13th, 14th century and it had its heyday, like the 15th and 16th century. And it was eventually supplanted by Kabuki. But Kurosawa was a bigger fan of the no theater and the no form, which is heavy uh, mask work and a lot of physicality with not as much in the way of dialogue. So he, what he wanted to do, obviously, he pared down a lot of the language from Shakespeare's original work. You see in the movie both a lot of the sort of the environmental design, the set design and the way actors are placed within that space, but also the way the actors are moving and also, of course, uh, the way the actors are using their faces. Very, very, very reminiscent of the no theater, especially in the case of uh, Lady Asagi, which is um, the Lady 
Lady Macbeth character. Her face is done up to resemble uh, a no mask. But also, of course, you have the great and powerful Tashira Mifune as Washizu, our lead character. And the dude has just one of the most powerful faces in cinema. And I feel like, uh, sidebar, enough really can't be said about uh, Tashira Mifune, not just, of course, as a collaborator of Kurosawa's. And they they made, I want to say, 16 movies together, but as one of the most influential performers in the history of cinema who does not necessarily get his due, his proper credit for being one of the most influential performers in the history of cinema in terms of screen actors, screen performance, and sort of revolutionizing what screen performance would be, Tashir Mufune is right up there with, you know, uh, with Brando as far as, you know, bits of what this guy did, what he either pioneered or refined would find its way into the work of any number of actors that came after. Uh, Most of the big sort of leading men, powerhouse actors you can name, there are elements of of some of the work that Mufune did, some of what he brought to the screen. And Mufune, too, um, his range was massive. He also had this uh, this animalistic quality. Like uh, People refer to actors who give really big, bold performances as forces of nature all the time. Like That expression gets thrown around a whole bunch. But I feel like for an actor like Mufune, that absolutely applies. It feels like... You know, he's, he, he can be completely composed in one second and then completely unhinged, primal, uh, savage, um, like he's a like he's a wolf that at any moment will like lunge out and rip your throat out with his teeth and stuff. And like very few actors have been able to do that as credibly, as believably as Mufune was was able to. And so one of his one of his uh, weapons, of course, is what he was able to do with his face. And so he, he brings that to bear here and is able to just in his contortions, uh, you know, just in, in the way he's moving elements of his face in relation to each other, how much emotion comes through um, just through his eyes when he's being still, when he's being um, outwardly passive. It's so conducive to Kurosawa's approach in that way. And so I think, you know, the influence of the no theater and trying to present this story through that prison, through um, an older style of Japanese theater, as opposed to, you know, the classical English style, the the Shakespearean way that Shakespeare's works would have been performed initially. Um, that is the, the probably the biggest, broadest and most key difference between the two, as it, of course, it speaks to the entire formal presentation of the thing. Then, of course, you know, we can we could go down a big list of uh, plot points that are changed. Things like, of course, uh, in Shakespeare's original, you have the three witches in Throne of Blood that's condensed into one figure. I think uh, there's an argument to be made that the Macbeth character in the source material had a little bit more agency than maybe it feels like Washizu does in this story. In the original, he makes the decision, once he hears the prophecy, if I recall correctly, makes the decision to kill Duncan, who's the equivalent character in the source material largely on his own. Kurosawa's character, Washizu, is largely content to be so sort of ruler of that castle, but it's his wife's ambition. And of course, that's what the Lady Macbeth character is known for, is being this sort of ultra-ambitious manipulator with murderous intent. But even more so in uh, Kurosawa's story, in my opinion, it feels like Washizu is almost being carried along by fate 
and uh, b- being pushed along by sort of the will of his wife, as opposed to making these decisions um, as actively and of his own volition as he did in the source. Um, the bit about Washizu deciding to make Miki's son his heir, that's not something that uh, I remember being in the source material. The stillborn birth, I don't remember being in the source material. Um, one of the keyest differences in terms of plot, and it gave us the standout sequence of the movie, is the way that he changes the ending from the source. And in the source material, the Macbeth character is defeated in single combat by the Macduff character, I believe. And the equivalent of the Macduff character in this story is uh, Noriyasu, the Takashi Shimura character. But uh, that character, their presence in the story is scaled way back here. In the original, that character defeats Macbeth in single combat. Ultimately, in this story, it's Washizu's own people who turn on him. And we get this really incredible sequence with uh, the arrows as they're all launched at him when he stands on the balcony and he meets his demise. And what's wild is those were real arrows being fired at Toshiro Mofune. Like uh, ordinarily, if you were making a movie like this, you know, what you do is maybe you'd have the arrows in the wall and they would, you know, you'd have them pop out of the wall instantaneously or something like that, like so quickly that if you cut fast, it would look like the arrows were being fired into the wall. You know, they would use trickery like that. But in this case, Kurosawa said, no, that doesn't look real at all. I don't buy that. And so they had just off camera actual archers firing arrows at Toshiro Mofune. So a good deal of the terror that you see on Washizu's face is genuine terror. Uh, Toshiro Mofune in that moment, hoping, praying that he didn't actually take an arrow uh, to the neck the way that his character does. So those are a, a number of sort of plot, maybe arguably more superficial differences between this version of it and the source. But of course, as I said, I think the biggest, most fundamental difference is the prism of the no theater, which is really that that cultural prism completely changes the the entire shape, the entire tone and in a lot of ways, the the context and the content of the thing itself. Do I get a gold star? You get the biggest gold star. <laughs> wow. Uh, I would say the only difference you missed is that there weren't sentient gargoyles that turn into stone at night. Uh, that was another big difference between the original Macbeth and this. Uh, they turn into stone during the day. That was my mess up. Sorry, guys. I retire. <laughs> Still, you're right. I did leave out the gargoyles that Shakespeare source material was known yes. for. <laughs> that, I think, those those little differences, I think, are really kind of what makes this a really compelling story in that, like, you really have to figure out where fate ends and where Washizu begins and, like, there are active choices he had to make, mostly guided by his wife's hands. And you can see that, like, the act of going through with these things are what ultimately drive him to madness. It's, uh, I will say that, like, Mifune does a really good job during that first scene where he kills the Lord, where he has the the spear in his hand and he's just like staring off into the middle distance because he knows what he's done is a bad thing, but like he he has to weigh the things that he will gain from doing so. And like his wife is like, murder's cool, I love it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna continue the frame job. You chill out, bro. But like they do a really good job of really like conveying the the like honor aspect of it. He was very 
content, but they keep implying that that ambition lives within him as well. And I will say that I like the ending. I'm not familiar with the ending of Macbeth because as I've stated before, I haven't read it, but I will say that like I like the idea of his own paranoia caused by his ambition is what ultimately causes his own downfall as opposed to just him being beaten by someone who is you know a better fighter than him right and and of course it also gives us one of the most incredible visual sequences not just in this movie but i would say in kurosawa's entire body of work and i do feel like it's a sequence that, you know, this movie came out in 1957. So obviously there have been great advents in the time since as far as what we're able to depict on screen, uh, the efficiency and realism with which we're able to depict it. And I feel like even given that, that sequence at the end where they're firing all of those arrows at him, uh, I feel like has lost none of its potency. I feel like it is just as primally evocative as it's ever been and some of that yeah is is strictly performance some of it is the staging of it but i mean it's uh, upsetting is not the right word necessarily but it is certainly like powerful and affecting um and it's one of the more visceral sequences i think you're gonna see in a shakespeare adaptation and i feel like it, it absolutely holds up as its own piece but i feel like because that's also the climax of the story and it's sort of the big like all right this is it we're gonna take it all in for a landing now this is how we resolve I feel like it anchors the movie in a way that even if you were like, okay, this is fine, but not necessarily my jam up till that point, I feel like there is no denying the power of this thing once you get through that sequence. Right. So something else I really wanted to talk about was the wardrobe of this whole thing, like all the armaments, all of the uh, just like the robes. And uh, like, I'm sure that I am missing the like official names for everything that I'm referring to, but just the original ancient style feudal wardrobe, I thought was really well done. And none of it ever felt like someone doing a period piece. It just felt like someone threw a camera into feudal Japan, which I really like. Another thing I really like, and this is, I assume, a very a thing that is specific to the clans in feudal Japan, because that's like what the whole feudal era was all about, is that like, oh man, look at us, we're clans and we're fighting over state state property is that like to mark off each individual clan they had their flags on their back but also the captain of that clan they were each represented by an animal and their helmets had some kind of fused piece that would represent that animal as well so washizu had the centipede and so the centipede's antennae going off to the side and so his helmet had the the like what you could say is like an, a smiley face, but it's supposed to represent the centipede's antennae in the same way that Mickey, his clan symbol was a rabbit. And so his also, his had the first one were the welded little ears that looked like they were just scrap metal. And then as he had gotten more position, it became like a more of an official like crescent type shape. Those are like fun little details that I specifically like, but I also think that it is that level of detail that like no one talks about it. No one's like, I love your rabbit 
ears on your helmet. Uh, it's just like these nice, fine details exist so that we can really feel immersed in that time. Yeah, totally. And at the at the end, uh, Washizu even looks a little bit more like a centipede with all the little arrows sticking off him. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> the ultimate form. You become the animal that represents you in the same way that Mickey had his head chopped off like people do to rabbits. Aw, yeah. <laughs> the one thing I do wish that I had gotten from this is... The Lady Macbeth character's descent into madness. I feel like the last scene that you see her before she's trying to wash the blood off her hands is she's giving uh, Washizu a bunch of shit. She's like, oh, isn't that admirable being scared by a ghost? Fucking get it together, you shithole. And then she has a stillborn. And I wish you got to see her experience that and that being like the thing that starts her drive into madness uh otherwise it just kind of like comes out of nowhere i feel i feel like that's in part a byproduct like it's something you lose when you make that character the lady asaji character sort of the living embodiment of the no theater within your story because i feel like you do lose some of the more expressive uh emotionality you know because like she's very much playing contained behind a mask and i do think you get i mean you get more of what you're describing in the original text and depending on how the text is interpreted and how the text is played, there's definitely, I think a stronger element in the original of part of what causes her to unravel is once they've done what they've done, a lot of it at her behest, at her urging, I think the weight of what they've done and to an extent, the guilt of it starts to really tear her apart and that's where the scrubbing of the the blood on the hands comes from the you know out out damn spot one of the most famous and oft quoted lines from theater and tied and tied what <laughs> i was just gonna blindly agree with you but but i gotta ask what the company tied who makes tide pods out out oh, damn spot like, did they use was that like a marketing thing of theirs for a while nope it was just a joke okay because that would be awesome because there would be so much to unpack if they used uh, out, out, damn spot, knowing the context from Macbeth as a pitch for uh, their laundry detergent. I think that would yes. be great. Tide, if you're listening, I think you should go for it. You don't even have to pay Tari. I mean, but you could. You could totally. Because, like, you're saving money because uh, Shakespeare's free domain. Is that what it's called? Open domain? Uh, public domain. Public domain. Public yeah. domain. So somebody should get paid and that person should be me. Somehow this gets noted to death and we end up with like a Kira Kurosawa branded Tide Pods. I think he'd appreciate that. <laughs> like they you talk know? to his family and they're like, no one asked us about this. <laughs> but give us money. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, detergent. Uh, notwithstanding in this story, it does feel a little bit more like it isn't guilt so much that contributes to Lady Asagi's unraveling. If anything, it feels a little bit more like uh, ambition thwarted, uh, ambition subverted, and not being able to process that, like uh, not being able to reconcile your actions with, oh, I did that for nothing. Mm. I mean, I guess that makes sense in that she uh, specifically was like, I didn't get blood on my hands for you to just be a, a dumb lord. So I guess she really wants the things that she did to have 
the most effect. I I think the in talking about the Lady Macbeth, Lady Asaji character, I, I will say that I think part of it, the like distance from her character is like some of the the how do I describe this? Like an anti-woman sensibility in that like the two corrupting characters in this movie are women it's the witch who like never needed to give them that prophecy the it was just it was just like hey i'm gonna fuck with you right and then they really go out of their way to paint washizu as like a just a noble dude but like who has just a nagging wife who wants him to do a murder um (laughs) so like there is a, a kind of like Eve ruins the Garden of Eden kind of feel to it, which I think is kind of icky, but it's like an older sensibility. And I'm looking at it from my modern woke ass eyes. Uh, my fucking third eye is open, baby. And I'm like, that's anti woman. But I, I just feel like that is probably why we got uh, less of a development for that character and that she was specifically just like a tool to push washizu forward as opposed to being like a fully fledged being herself yes i think i mean and what you're describing is definitely a byproduct of the source material as well of course but i i do think yes um without those additional shades because i do i do think to call this character one note would be to sell it short but you definitely you do get fewer shades i think than you do with uh, the lady macbeth character in the source material um and again too so much of what lady asaji has to do um even when she's really beginning her descent so much of it is so very very contained and underplayed that yes you don't get you know, uh, Mufune doesn't have to be melting down fully um, like he does several times to great effect in this movie. You see what he does with his eyes in this thing where he gets so big and it's like he's completely frenzied even while he's being the rest of his body's completely still. Whereas you don't get anything quite as big or as expressive from the Lady Asaji character. It's it's all interiority and sort of very small, nuanced outward expressions. And I think it's very effective, but yes, a byproduct of that, especially when she still has to serve the functions in this version of the story as the equivalent character in the source material. Yes, you do end up, I feel like um, there's a little bit less as an audience member to chew on from, say, like an emotional point of view, certainly. Right. Um, Because you're not you're not as privy to her interiority. Like there's so much there to to let you know. That the interiority is is present and happening, but you're not as privy to it as you are with, say, uh, Mufune's through his performance. Right. But I will say that, like, another character that I did get very attached to, to my chagrin, was Mickey. Because, mm-hmm. like, they, they're like, oh, man, look at them. They're best friends. They're both going to have such good fortunes. And Mickey's like, yeah, you know, I have no reason to distrust my bestest buddy in the world. He's going to give my, he's going to give my son the castle and I'm going to sit pretty. Oh man, I love friendship. And then while she's just like, Hey, I'm going to kill you. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not just like going to have someone stab you in the, in the forest. I'm going to have them bring your head to me because I'm a monster. 
And I hated that because I really like Mickey had his back. Mickey was like, yo, I'm not going to tell anybody about that prophecy that said that this was going to happen. I'm going to like these two dudes who are trying to snitch on you. I'm going to give them stitches. And in in the end, like he he betrayed him, but he didn't have to. He didn't like the prophecy still could have came true without killing his best friend right well in fact the prophecy would have not not only could it have come true without it in fact in large part it coming true necessitated in hindsight him not taking those actions and that's a very standard i mean at this point it's almost a cliche right like in in trying to either fulfill a prophecy or stop it from being fulfilled you end up directly causing your own demise right you end up like sleeping with your mom poking your your eyes out killing your dad classic classic sometimes sometimes all at once yeah also uh i guess want to shout out since we're talking about the character of mickey um played by minoru chiaki who's another frequent collaborator of akira kurosawa something that i like about kurosawa um and i I like when filmmakers do this um he built essentially a stock company of actors for himself uh, collaborators that he would work with again and again and again um so yeah, Chiaki is one. Mufune, obviously another one. Um, and Takashi Shimura, who's also in this movie, was another frequent collaborator of his as well. And normally, um, or at least for a time, uh, Takashi Shimura and Toshiro Mufune would be paired together in Kurosawa's movies. They were together in like Stray Dog, very famously, which is a movie that like for all intents and purposes, sort of established the like older cop, younger cop buddy dynamic in movies. But of course, like they were both in Seven Samurai, for example. Also, sidebar of a sidebar, uh, most of the movies that Toshiro Mifune and Kurosawa collaborated on were for Toho Studios, including this one. And uh, Toho Studios was also the company behind the Godzilla movies. So uh, Chiaki, who played Miki, uh, appeared in Godzilla Raids again in 1955. Um, Also, uh, Takashi Shimura was in, I think it was in that one also, but was also in the original Godzilla, which we talked about on this show a while ago. But I wanted to talk real quick about those actors because A, I like the whole stock company thing when filmmakers do it, but also it's never a bad time to remind people that there is a lot of overlap between the works of Akira Kurosawa and the Godzilla series. Right, of course, because they're both giant monsters <laughs> but i uh, also i think the uh the three actors that that i just mentioned they were all in rashomon as well and rashomon is another one of the most sort of famous and influential movies of all time that uh, has become a verb you know what i mean like we it's literally become its own sort of thing like when you hear rashomon even if you have not seen the movie um most people know what you're referring to which is essentially you know like uh, we're gonna hopefully get to the truth but this story is being presented from uh, multiple points of view some of which may contradict others um but like that aspect and i like i like that you can track a roving creative band through uh, a career over decades as opposed to just trying to track one person i find that shit fun yeah it's like what Christopher Nolan does or how um, the guy who did Guardians feels about Michael Rooker. <laughs> James Gunn, yes. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, if we're talking about actor-director pairings, Kurosawa and Mifune, arguably the most significant and influential actor-director team of all time, right? Like, I think it's very unlikely that we get to, like, Scorsese and De Niro without 
the two of them and the work that they did and the way they collaborated with each other and stuff. But also, Godzilla. Godzilla's dope. He's like America's stay-at-home dad, but he lives <laughs> in the ocean. Okay, so we are running out of time. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap out? Hmm. Well, I'm inspired once again to jump back into Akira Kurosawa's filmography. I revisit, I would say, at least half his movies every couple years or so. And also, like, I feel like I want to dive back into Shakespeare again. But I think the movie that it made me most want to go back and watch is Kurosawa's other Shakespeare adaptation, which is a movie he made a bunch of years later called Ron, which is his adaptation of King Lear, which is also set in feudal Japan. And I guess this came to my mind earlier in this conversation. I think you referenced sort of the the general aesthetic and the look of things, I think, when we were talking about form. And it reminded me of an anecdote. Uh, Sidney Lumet, uh, the director Sidney Lumet, did a book about filmmaking. It's not super long, but it's very good. And in his introduction, I believe he was, he was talking about a conversation that he had had with Akira Kurosawa, um, either one that he had had himself or one that he had read or heard. And they were talking about a couple of shots in Ron, uh, the way Kurosawa chose to frame these shots. The, the framing is exquisite. Why did you choose to stage this scene this way? How, how did you make these choices about your frame? And Kurosawa sort of gestures towards the frame and he goes, well, a couple inches to the right, there's a factory. And a few inches to the left, you see the freeway. And I didn't want you to see either the factory or the freeway. So I shot it like this. And I think that's great. <laughs> um, I think it's good. Like, honestly, I think about that that a lot because of the way that we sort of raise up and deify artists as these mysterious geniuses. And a good deal of the time, they're just very capable craftspeople doing a job. I think about, I don't know, I think about that a whole bunch. Right. As somebody who came to this for the first time, um, what, I guess, are your closing thoughts about it? What is your takeaway? Do you feel like uh, you're more inclined to go check out more of Kurosawa's work in collaboration with Mifune? Do you feel more inclined to pick up the source text, dive in, learn some Shakespearean monologues and stuff? You're going to start composing your own sonnets? Man, where are you at? Uh, definitely a no on the Shakespearean sonnets, but a, a yes <laughs> in terms of... I am interested in checking out more Akira Kurosawa. This is the second one that you've brought on the show, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, the first one being Yojimbo. And so I think I would like to dive in a little bit more, maybe check out Hidden Tower or Hidden Castle, Hidden something or other. Uh, Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress. Which actually should mention Kurosawa, one of the most influential directors of all time, Hidden yes. Fortress. Uh, that was a lot is a lot of people like of our generation. A lot of people use that as a way in because, of course, Hidden Fortress was a heavy, heavy major influence on the original Star Wars. Um, yeah. Also, sidebar, uh, Kurosawa is a big fan of using wipes as transitions, and almost nobody else does that except George Lucas in Star Wars because Kurosawa did it. Uh, but I'm a fan of those. They showed up in this movie. That's it. You were saying? Okay. What kind of wipes? Does he use like Clorox wipes or Lysol wipes? Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't think it's one of the major brands. Like he's trying to be environmentally conscious. So I know that they're ones that like they dissolve. They're biodegradable. They dissolve after he flushes them. Oh, nice. Good for him. So uh, I think, yeah, I'll check out that Seven Samurai, probably Rashomon, uh, because all of these things are 
as you were saying, he's very influential. And all of these things have been remade, have been referenced throughout the course of my existence. Like even the helmet of the Lord of Forest Castle, that big giant crescent moon shape on his helmet is often referenced in uh, anime as well. So like, yes, I am definitely inspired to check out other other things by Akira Kurosawa. And then I'm even slightly tempted to check out uh, other adaptations of Macbeth, even though the Gargoyles version is literally the only canon version to me. Um, <laughs> I am tempted to check out other versions. I hear that Michael Fassbender had done a version, so maybe I'll check out his. Because he also said that Throne of Blood was a very big inspiration for his performance in that film. So I will just keep feeding this Ouroboros of things that are inspired by other things that are inspired by other things. I think that that is my big takeaway. I think it's fun. Everyone should check it out. It's a great period piece, a lot of great set stuff, great fog effects, and really really cool set pieces so yeah do it a lot of horse stuff too a lot of horse play lex michael if people wanted to talk to you some more about let's say throne of blood or akira kurosawa or the criterion collection because i assume that that's how you watch this or other things where can they find you you, you are correct i do own the criterion collection blu-ray though of course you can also stream it on the criterion channel with audio commentary and stuff but if you want to talk to me about that or about anything else you can find me on social media i'm on twitter and instagram at the lex michael uh and if you're in the mood for more of my bullshit i also do a podcast with my partner marianne ramish we call it friends with benefits we take a look on this show at the pop culture juggernaut that is the television series Friends. Uh, Marianne is a big fan. I am not. But we're going episode by episode through the entire thing. That's like 98 seasons of television. And we're going to be talking about it from a fan perspective and from a critical perspective. Uh, I'm definitely having more fun talking about Friends than I am watching it. Uh, But whether you're a fan or not, I think you can get something out of this. We are having a very good time doing this podcast, Friends with Benefits. You can find that wherever you found your shows. You found this one, you can probably find that one too. Tari J, where can people find you wow well you can find me on twitter at tari j that's t-a-u-r-i-j-a-y but most importantly you can find this show at missing outcast that's m-i-s-s-i-n-g-o-u-t-c-a-s-t and we're going to be continuing our sweet theme of cinema lit 101 next week with oh brother where art thou a retelling of the odyssey bet you didn't know that did you hell yeah it's cool (laughs) so make sure to check that out make sure you have a wonderful week make sure to take care of yourself self-care is very important especially now. Uh, Until we see you again, this has been the retrospective that is introspective. And now you have a new perspective. And this is where the weird, uncomfortable sex joke goes. Oh, no! Ready? Bad sex joke from earlier. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, you dropped that in like I dropped my penis in the (laughs) mind!